In June of 2022, Democrat Congressman Jamal Bowman claimed that Republican political success would result in violence, civil war, and the rise of white supremacy. This kind of dangerous hyperbolic language is not new in the history of the Democratic Party, however, and was largely to blame for the civil war. Jamal Bowman, Democrat congressman for New York and an avowed progressive member of the squad, uh, stated that the election of Republicans would result in, and I quote, uh, it would also embolden the far right and white nationalists across the country to begin to believe that it is their time to not just take power in the House, but the Senate, the White House, and state houses across the country. We've got to understand that this is a group that has been radicalized by the great replacement myth and many other things, and have been pushing for violence and pushing for even civil war. So that is what's at stake right now in terms of this election. Now, although worthy of condemnation in and of its own own rights, uh, this type of language really is not new. Uh, it's really routinely populated uh, the political discourse, uh, at least since the rise of radical Calhounism uh, around 1824 with the formation of the Democrat Party. And it's largely been a uh, the leading uh, strategy that they've employed uh, to try to acquire some kind of uh, political advantage or leverage and to keep uh, popul- populations and political bases kind of riled up uh, at a constant state of frenzy uh, in order to I guess, inspire a sense of uh, political fealty. So this kind of language really, it breaks down into a couple uh, categories. We're going to do a historical review of this type of language, especially as it applies in the history of the Democratic Party, and draw these parallels into the modern day where it's become commonplace uh, to throw around terms like civil war, uh, and claims that uh, Republicans want to kill children uh, and uh, many other just really radical and dangerous uh, levels of, of language here. So one element of this type of rhetoric is that it incites direct action by specific ideological identity groups. The second use of this kind of language is it is used to elevate a circumstance and exaggerate it into the level of a crisis. Uh, so it, it creates this, art, well, artificially creates a sense of impending doom or some type of a climactic event. Okay, so uh, that's kind of your proverbial mountain of the molehill type, type deal. Uh, now, although it's not new uh, in the political life of the country, and especially the Democratic Party, Uh, technology has really, really amplified its effects, uh, both in how quickly it can spread and really just how people can be inundated with this material. Uh, The the best way to put this into perspective is that Edward Bernays, who was uh, coined the father of propaganda, and one can reasonably also extend that to be social conditioning, he was terrified by national radio. Because in his view, and with his very unique uh, understanding of propaganda being the architect of it, essentially, or at least uh, crafting into a kind of science, uh, he understood that being able to reach the entire nation simultaneously uh, 
was just a dangerous tool in the hands of those who desire social propaganda and to condition entire groups of the population towards a particular mindset, the echo chamber, if you will. And that was simply with radio that could reach from coast to coast. Uh, I don't I don't think too much attention needs to be paid on today's technological circumstances and the potential perils then that have arisen uh, from it. So the earliest manifestations of this kind of language really began to manifest itself in the irrepressible conflict, uh, which is first uh, a, a seeming conflict in two directions. One was uh, the ongoing slave dilemma that would uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, assumed it would decay uh, into an eventual race war, uh, much like had occurred in Haiti. Uh, during this entire time period, of course, there was this massive uh, kind of universal acceptance of black-white incompatibility, uh, both because of the, the remaining slaveholding states in the South, the Democratic Party, uh, and also it was just a scientific theory that whites and blacks were two different species, and so they could not coexist. Uh, it's just kind of a play on the idea there's can only, you know, there can only be one alpha kind of thing. So in 1756, Jefferson acknowledged this. He writes uh, to a friend of his uh, that nothing is more certain, certainly written in the book of fate, than that these poor people are to be free. Nor is it less certain that the two races equally free cannot live in the same government. Nature, habit, opinion has drawn indelible lines of distinction between them. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, reflected on this as well in his very famous or infamous, if you're a Democrat, uh, House Divided speech, uh, where he he spoke, We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation is not only not increased, or not cease, excuse me, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached. So, what you can see from uh, kind of the variation here between Jefferson and Lincoln is that this uh, irrepressible conflict evolved over time to not be a white versus black conflict anymore, but it actually became a Republican-Democrat, North-South, free-slave conflict. And that came to embody uh, the truest manifestation of what was meant by the irrepressible conflict. Uh, and... Uh, if you read uh, through volume uh, one and two, actually, of the 1787 Project, I uh, very clearly outline this conflict as it manifested itself in the courts, in the legal systems, state laws, federal laws, election cycles, speeches, etc. Now, in response to uh, this kind of conflict of sorts, uh, the Democrat Party had much to say about it. Uh, one of their most uh, famous uh, fire-eater Democrats, these fanatic, radical, uh, really kind of pre-Marxist, left Hegelian, pro-slavery people. It's really, uh, their ideology is, is, uh, is truly, truly harrowing. I, I did an episode specifically on it, actually. Uh, James D. Bow was this gentleman's name, and he owned uh, D. Bow's Review, which is one of the most widely circulated and read uh, journals in the South uh, throughout this entire period. And uh, <clears throat> part of his, I guess, mission was to constantly sow 
discord and to really try to stimulate uh, the ire and the anxiety of Southern Democrats. So in one one such writing, uh, he says that the North has applauded theft, murder, treason, and at the hands of our Northern brethren has shed Southern blood on Southern soil. Who can ever again say, peace, brothers? There is and there can be no peace. Therefore, what we need and what we must have or perish is that this united re- or united public opinion of ours have some united action of resistance to win. Uh, so this was largely in response uh, to a nothing burger uh, of the uh, fugitive slave law and its its aftermath. And what you see here is uh, any slight resistance to slavery was instantly just inflated to this notion of theft, murder, treason, uh, you know, spilling southern blood on southern soil. That was a reference to John Brown. Uh, and just part of this snippet here, he says, there can be no peace. And so the only thing left to do is, is to unite together to resist. Uh, and of course, that's a popular word in the modern discourse, the resist, although I'm convinced that uh, most people who like to uh, pluck that uh, hashtag around uh, don't actually know what they're resisting. Now, of course, you can't mention the irrepressible conflict and slavery in the Democratic Party without talking about John C. Calhoun. Uh, he was uh, the historical antichrist of the pro-slavery Democratic Party. Uh, he spearheaded and framed the ideological, the ideological framework of nullification theory uh, and the perversion of states' rights, and he also contributed tremendously to the irrepressible conflict. So Democratic publications in the South and their politicians... Uh, constantly maligned Republicans as anti-constitutional tyrants and dictators. Uh, They argued that any restriction on slavery, let alone abolitionism, uh, it was synonymous with the genocidal massacre of white Southerners. It was made synonymous uh, with the destruction of Southern economy, uh, the destruction of all white employment, which kind of the modern day, they never actually said how this would occur, what the mechanisms were, but the statement nonetheless stuck, and it was very, uh, well, very emotional, of course. They also began to spread rumors around this time that the abolition of slavery, or really even even gradual emancipation, any end to slavery, uh, was synonymous with the forced marriage between white women and black men. Of course, they're trying to uh, drum up uh, this uh, the 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 kind of negative consequences of uh, the Haitian Revolution or the Haitian Massacre, as I prefer to call it, uh, and of course it would then result in uh, you know the the brutal sexual assault of white women from black men, because a large part of Democrat propaganda at this time and going uh, well into the Reconstruction era and and even into the 20th century. Uh, was that black men were uh, sexual predators who were unable to curb or control their own appetites. And, of course, that was used to justify uh, Jim Crow laws and the like. And we could see how effective their propaganda was and their social conditioning was. I mean, for decades and decades, they drummed these ideas into the heads of these Southerners who were largely uh, illiterate, largely uneducated, um, 
perhaps the greatest example of that is uh, while Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, by Harriet Beecher Stowe, which was a brilliant work of abolitionist literature, uh, was so widely distributed uh, that its only rival was the Bible. But in the South, since so few people could read, they, uh, the plantation master class translated it into a puppet show, which, of course, they didn't tell the true story, uh, which is ironically where the uh, current pejorative of Uncle Tom comes from. So anyone who says who refers to a black person as an Uncle Tom is actually channeling the white supremacist pro-slavery uh, insults of the Democratic Party. So keep that in mind when you see those in the headlines because it's tossed around quite a bit. But we can see how effective, though, and we how this this conditioning was. Uh, so if you imagine uh, or examine the Civil War, for example, uh, you had any, and of course, numbers are very widely, uh, but somewhere between 750,000 to a million Southerners uh, fought in the Confederate Army. The purpose of the Civil War for the South was to protect slavery and potentially to expand slavery. But only... Uh, at the very minimum, 76% of these you know, million soldiers didn't even own a slave, a single slave. That's based on you know, 1860 census numbers. So you can reasonably infer that those in the Confederate Army least likely to be killed, uh, so your officers, highest-ranking members, those also just happen to be the plantation master class. You know, that 0.1% of the elite slave-owning master class Southern Democrats. So they essentially use this social conditioning uh, first to uh, create a political base to ensure uh, their own political monopoly in the Southern states. Uh, But then they, uh, so complete was this conditioning that all of these white Southerners went to fight and die for a war that they had nothing to gain. Uh, In fact, they really only had uh, everything to lose should the South win. Just as uh, the elite master class subjugated blacks to enslavement, uh, uh, numerous uh, pamphlets and books were written at the time that noticed that the lords of the lash, uh, they oppressed whites as well. Uh, very, very often the laboring yeoman farmer uh, worked alongside enslaved blacks in the fields. So there was really a... a a rigid social and racial caste system that the Southern Democrat Party uh, fought to preserve. They wanted to maintain their master class. So, of course, this was used politically as well. Uh, Really starting very, very early into the history of the Democratic Party, it should be uh, remembered that it was formed not exclusively, but principally uh, to resist anti-slavery sentiment. Uh, So the founding era principles of gradual emancipation, of slavery as a moral, uh, but transplanted evil that would eventually fade away on its own, they rejected all of that. Instead, they they decided that slavery was a divine gift of God, that it was their right as white Southerners to have black slaves, and that the federal government should protect slavery, and that they had the federal government had no right to restrict it, as it had historically 
and new territories and the like. So that was the the guiding principle of the uh, Democrat Party. Of course, their largest other uh, issue was with tariffs, but even the tariffs that they took issue with, it was because it uh, affected the slave economy of the South uh, to a tremendous extent. So it was throughout this entire time period and through uh, threats of violence, war, and secession that the Democrat Party shaped itself into the party of radicalism, violence, and political terrorism throughout this time. And all of these actions were taken in defense of slavery, of course. So in 1830, for example, uh, the Democrat superstar Robert Hayne uh, he and uh, Henry Clay uh, held a series of debates. And in one of these debates, uh, Robert Hayne bristled, really, that uh, any notion that slavery was not actually an economic boon, but that it was a type of barrier. And he takes this as all Democrats at the time, any type of uh, downplay or uh, anything that could be made about slavery was taken as a personal insult and then was elevated and sensationalized to the level, really, of war. And so uh, in response to saying uh, that, well, you know, slavery actually isn't the dominant economic system, uh, Robert Hayne responds saying, and I quote, the impression which has gone abroad of the weakness of the South as connected with their slave question exposes us to such constant attacks, has done us so much injury, and is calculated to produce such infinite mischiefs that I embrace the occasion presented by the remarks of the gentleman from Massachusetts to declare that we are ready to meet the question promptly and fearlessly. It is one from which we are not disposed to shrink in whatever form or under whatever circumstances it may be pressed upon us, we are ready to make up the issue with the gentleman as to the influence of slavery on individual national character. Blah, blah, blah. blah. So anyway, he takes the slightest hint of any ridicule, escalates it up into this massive, uh, you know, this massive issue, these infinite mischiefs, uh, all these different attacks, so much injury, he says, which is kind of kind of ridiculous and actually uh, that was not Henry Clay it was Daniel Webster I misspoke there and this really became the modus operandi of the Democratic Party throughout the entire time period um, James Hammond uh, he was another famous fire eater he was a Democrat congressman and in response to uh, an influx of abolitionist petitions uh, sent to Congress uh, he responded with and I quote again Every mail from the north brings fresh news of agitation. Every breeze is tainted with it. It spreads like wildfire in the prairies and throws its red glare up to heaven that all may see while it sweeps with resistless fury everything before it. I call on every slaveholder in this house and in this country to mark its fearful progress and prepare to meet it. He who falters here or elsewhere... He who shrinks from taking the highest and the strongest ground at once is a traitor, a traitor to his native soil, of course, this is the South here, a traitor to the memory of those from whom he has inherited his rights. 
a traitor to his helpless offspring who call upon him for protection, and on his head be the blood which his treachery or cowardice may cause to flow. This was in response to petitions sent to Congress concerning the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C. Not in southern states, not in James Hammond's home state or town, just in Washington, D.C., since Congress had uh, sole control of the area. And note, he calls into question here, anyone who doesn't resist this is a coward. And not just a coward, but a traitor. A traitor to themselves and a traitor to, in his case, the South. Uh, which indicates, of course, this clear, divergent identity of the South versus the North. And notice, especially, that he calls in children. A traitor to his helpless offspring who cough to him for protection. And hold that in mind, because that's going to become a prevalent theme in virtually all such sensationalist propaganda and conditioning that's, that uh, we're going to talk about uh, as time goes on here. So, of course, uh, he wasn't alone in his rejection of uh, abolitionist petitions and his love of censoring uh, the First Amendment, actually. Uh, Andrew Jackson, the first Democrat president, uh, he conspired with his postmaster general to destroy, burn, or just not deliver any uh, pamphlets, books, literature, journals, publications uh, that had even a hint of anti-slavery uh, taint to them, as Jackson referred to it. Uh, so abusing the office of the presidency, abusing the postmaster general office, of course, and all the numerous smaller federal officers underneath him, uh, to actively commit uh, felonies, to destroy uh, federal mail and, and the like. Uh, of course, for, for Andrew Jackson, uh, he stated that he thought that all people who even sent such materials should be killed. And, of course, they'd have these giant parties uh, where they would burn all these uh, abolitionist pamphlets and also burn abolitionists in effigy along with it. So you can truly see the effects of this ongoing decades and decades and decades of propaganda already. And at a perhaps the most blatant example of it is in 1861, uh, with, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's already understood that there is going to be a civil war, at least a secession. Uh, James D. Bow, which we talked about earlier as well, uh, he wrote an entire treatise, and this was aimed towards recruiting non or non-slaveholding whites to uh, the cause of the Confederacy. Uh, of course, it was uh, unimaginably titled uh, To the Slaveholders of the South. And DeBow argued that non-slaveholding Southerners has much to lose as slaveholders with the loss of slavery. And he centered this around employment, uh, economics in general, uh, and really just kind of created out of abolitionism the idea of massive, just really apocalyptic dystopian results. Uh, roving hordes of black men uh, assaulting and murdering and all that kind of thing. So really he just kind of created an image of the Haitian Revolution. <clears throat> now extending ourselves beyond uh, the antebellum period, uh, during Reconstruction and well into the 20th century, uh, the propaganda continued largely unabated. Uh, Southerners were told repeatedly that any reduction 
of black codes, which were the precursors to Jim Crow laws. Uh, and of course, later were just redefined as Jim Crow laws. But any reduction of these laws would result in the destruction of white jobs and the sexual predation of white women. Uh, and of course, segregation was was held aloft as a vital component of restraining these animalistic urge, urges of, uh, of the black population. And of course, they mixed in a good old healthy dose of racial purity, white supremacy, and that kind of thing too. Uh, it was so prevalent, actually, that uh, a large element of this propaganda was per- pursued by white women. Uh, one such instance, there was uh, not uncommon to see parade floats with white women uh, just holding signs that said, defend us or protect us or some iteration thereof. And so it was just like Hammond earlier was trying to invoke the manhood and the rights and responsibilities, the obligations of being a Southern man, white women perpetuated that same cycle. So, of course, to protect white women meant uh, you lynched black men. That's really how it kind of came down. And it's worth noting that, uh, speaking of lynching in general, uh, that this came to be that really an era of uh, Democrat political ter- terrorism against black Americans uh, and Republicans more generally. Uh, many whites were also lynched in, these, in just a series of these terrible, terrible riots and just massacres. Uh, they're so spread out and so prevalent. I cover them over three, over three books because every time period is punctuated with lynchings, burnings, uh, and all of it predicated on uh, p- politics. Um, black Republicans were assaulted and killed. Re- white Republicans were assaulted and killed or forced to leave. Uh, and in one such instance, of course, blacks were given permission slips by a Democrat influential Democrats uh, that uh, vouched for them. Uh, don't beat or kill this black person because they're going to vote for us. Uh, that was especially prevalent in, say, South Carolina. As soon as federal marshals were out of the South, as soon as the Republican Party withdrew from the South, it quickly devolved back into the Democrat uh, monopoly that it had been uh, prior to the Civil War. And, of course, with that monopoly came white supremacy, segregation, black codes, later Jim Crow laws, and all the wonderful things that are often ignored in the larger uh, contextual history of the Democratic Party. So moving into the progressive era, nothing, nothing changed. Uh, the Democrat Party uh, started to claim that any election of Republicans would cause tremendous economic and financial damage to the country. Uh, this is where or when uh, Republicans came to be associated, most of which the air quotes, uh, the rich, uh, which there's much irony to be had there as well. Uh, and of course, with the growth of the uh, centralized authority in the social welfare state, uh, any election with Republicans would result in Republicans taking these things away from the people. That's how it was characterized. Uh, so the Republicans wanted people to Uh, live in poverty. They wanted people to starve. They wanted people to die from disease, to be unemployed. These were all very prevalent, uh, sensationalist, and just absurd talking points pushed, especially by Truman and FDR. And of course, during the same period, however, 
uh, Democrats resisted actual integration uh, because their masses and populations were still being told that such integration would result in the downfall of the white man, uh, either largely through increased labor competition. So it was a routine uh, byproduct of this uh, kind of social conditioning and propaganda uh, that white unionists uh, would, would uh, or union members would often assault and kill blacks who were employed uh, in the same factories. Uh, and this was especially prevalent during strikes where blacks were uh, labeled strike breakers. And then, of course, if that label was attached to you, then you were stripped of all your humanity instantly. And during the Civil Rights era, uh, Democrats uh, claimed moral superiority on issues of race, uh, despite having never held any majority vote uh, for civil rights legislation, and of course, you know, obstructing little things like slavery. Uh, so they were the party of slavery, they fought a war to maintain slavery, and then they murdered and terrorized blacks for nearly a century after the military defeat. Uh, but they still uh, decided to start repeating this idea that they were the party for the blacks, they were the party for civil rights. Uh, which, of course, the flip side of that is labeling the Republican Party as not being those things. So then to vote for Republicans, it be became a co-racial policing type of issue, where if you were to vote for Republicans, you were at Uncle Tom and, and the like. Uh, climate change, which depending on the decade, it could be global warming, uh, could be global cooling, you know, the coming ice age. Uh, that's why they just kind of adopted the more general mantra. Uh, the Republicans were maligned as the group who wanted to murder the entire planet. Uh, they wanted dirty air, they wanted dirty water, uh, they wanted to kill all the whales, they wanted to burn down the rainforests. Uh, of course, these claims varied based on the year. Uh, or the election cycle, whatever the hot button issue was at the time, uh, it was, that was what was pursued. So in the modern day, bringing all of this forward, uh, there is perhaps no more powerful example than really the last uh, year. Uh, for those of us fortunate enough uh, to be enduring the COVID and now post-COVID uh, political landscape. Uh, so COVID was weaponized almost immediately. Uh, it was a, not only of a tool to implement a draconian legislation and policies, but also a tool of sweeping social propaganda. Red states, Republicans, uh, they did not care about lives. Unvac unvaccinated people were considered to be uh, murderers, careless, uh, uneducated, ignorant, unscientific, and so forth. And this reverberated throughout the headlines and the TV shows and even the political speeches uh, at the time. Uh, one such panel of alleged intellectuals and thinkers uh, on CBS determined that unvaccinated people, which of course one can draw a political distinction there, a majority of unvaccinated people are Republican. Uh, so effectively it's, euph it's a euphemism for targeting political opponents. So unvaccinated people were attempting to exercise their freedom to, and I quote, to kill people. Uh, leftist groups sold I-won't-kill-you cards uh, meant to be carried by vaccinated people, I guess, to show others as a sense of moral superiority. Uh, of course, the implication meaning, again, if you're not vaccinated, you want to kill people, or that you would kill people. And of course, the, the real irony here is that 
you know, now here it is in 2022 and you could have all the shots in the world and you can still catch and spread the disease. So it's more like the card should read, I can still kill you, but I can't die would be the proper card. Uh, or I probably won't die. So, of course, another element to this particular instance uh, was that any reluctance to take an experimental vaccine meant that you were automatically anti-science, opposed to all vaccines, and you wanted people to die. Of course, this is completely absurd. But it was also absurd to claim that ending slavery would result in the mass uh, rape of white women by predatory black men. So in the long history of polarizing language in the United States, uh, the really... Any idea or concept of a gray area, compromise, or reason has been destroyed. You're either on one side or the other. So another political example uh, lay in Obamacare or just kind of more generally a universal health care system. Uh, so a couple more uh, salient headlines read, Republicans want to kill you. Another headline, yes, the Republican Obamacare strategy will kill people. And of course... Another headline again, killing Obamacare will literally kill people. So we know that's absurd, but it's, it, uh, it bears consideration that millions of people see these headlines. Of course, most don't read the articles, but millions see the headlines regardless, and they believe them. And even if they don't believe them, that the sheer repetition of, these, of this idea has a social conditioning effect. So the same is often done uh, to a lesser extent with Medicare and Medicaid, really before Obamacare. Of course, there was the, the, the famous ad that showed uh, the Republican Paul Ryan pushing an old lady off of a cliff in her wheelchair. Uh, because any, any opposition to tax increases or really even any attempt to maybe audit the spending uh, is automatically labeled as you wanting old people to die. Again, the irony being there, that uh, it's necessary for governments to choose to make people die by depriving them health care in universal health care services. But irony, I, I think, anymore is uh, kind of like common sense. So at the, at the present day, you know, which is partly why I did a episode specifically on the Second Amendment, guns are the hottest topic, and it has, uh, it's just white hot rhetoric surrounding guns right now. Uh, so just like any proposal uh, to restrict slavery was aligned as violence, now any resistance to anti-Second Amendment laws are maligned as Republicans wanting children to die, uh, apparently uh, just like COVID or Obamacare. So just like pro-slavery propaganda that targeted, that attempted to label the entire North and all of its members in a certain way, uh, current Democrat propaganda does the same for all Republicans. Uh, and this this varies, but uh, a few headlines, I think, uh, will highlight this pretty well. Uh, so one headline reads, Republicans value AR-15 rifles and the right to bear arms more than the lives of children. Another one reads, Republican monsters, and of course that's all caps lock, value guns more than protecting children's lives. And... America loves guns more than kids. Another one, I guess, maybe attempting to break the mold a little bit, since apparently they all you know, like to read from the same cue cards here. It poses as a question. 
Why are children less valuable than guns in America? And of course, one must blanketly label the entire GOP as well, right? How many more kids need to die because of GOP's gun obsession? So note the meaning here, right? So if you think the Second Amendment is legitimate, and if you lawfully own guns and don't favor the restriction, because that would only hit lawful gun owners, that means you want children to die. And you devalue the life of children below the inanimate object of a gun, which is interesting for them to phrase it that way, uh, seemingly oblivious to the common anthropomorphic fallacies they apply to guns. And so the same group uh, who values no restrictions on abortion uh, thinks that if you own a firearm, you want children to die. So these examples, uh, they just mirror the incendiary rhetoric of the Democratic Party leading it up to the Civil War. Uh, The icing on the cake, of course, is the uh, Honorable Congressman of New York that we mentioned at the start of this episode, Jamal Bowman, that claimed uh, that Republican elections would result in a civil war fueled by white supremacists. And of course, obviously, his implication here is that Republicans are white supremacists. Not just they're eager for violence and war, but he's really trying to stoke those racial hatred flames, which has always been a hallmark of the Democratic Party. Initially, they stoked the flames of anti-black racism. Now they just are going with the more popular public opinion poll choice. And of course, Bowman here is, he's immune to irony, and he's dangerously illiterate in terms of American history. He is, in a literal sense, projecting the history and values of his own party onto the party that defeated them and freed the slaves. So that's kind of a, an interesting tidbit. Of course, we really can't consider Bowman to be too knowledgeable, uh, but he serves as great evidence for the uh, political ideology, propaganda, and fealty, uh, co-racial policing, to uh, coin a phrase, in the Democratic Party. Uh, he described... Uh, Mayra Flores, who was a Mexican-born woman who was elected as a Republican in southern Texas. He described any vote for her as a vote for white supremacy and authoritarianism. So it just, to to label a Mexican-born Hispanic uh, woman as white supremacy really demonstrates how desperately the Democratic Party attaches these kinds of labels against any political opponent. So not even those necessarily white. So just like they would not kill blacks who voted Democrat. Now, in the modern day, the race is still secondary to ideology. Hence the lynching of white Republicans back in the glory days of the Democratic Party. And of course, this is the same party that labels uh, you know, Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy and, and, and all these other really absurd things. You know, Clarence Thomas is an Uncle Tom. Uh, which actually is a compliment, if uh, unless you're referring to the Southern Democrat interpretation of Uncle Tom. So consider all of these kind of uh, these headlines about uh, healthcare, guns, COVID, and the like, and consider that with what we've discussed with the uh, more historical sensationalism of the Democratic Party. So any and all attempts to reduce slavery or even to discuss slavery was a a vicious assault on all Southern people, all Southern men. Uh, Essentially, if you wanted 
uh, to free the slaves, then you wanted black people to murder white people, and you wanted black men to sexually assault white women uh, and or force them to marry uh, black men. So again, Haitian, Haitian massacre incarnate there. Uh, it would destroy the southern economy. It would uh, send all southern people into abject poverty and desolation. Uh, just really just anything, even the slightest uh, hint at resisting uh, slavery, not even threatening it where it already existed, but saying, oh, well, we don't want to enter, a, say, a certain territory into the Union as a slave state. Well, if you didn't want it to enter as a slave state, you wanted all white women to be murdered. You know, that type of absurdity. So sensationalism has long been uh, the modus operandi of the Democratic Party. Uh, so nearly a century's worth conditioned and convinced a million Southern men to fight and die to defend slavery, an institution that they only stood to benefit if it was eliminated. But they were so convinced that slavery was an essential social institution to maintain their happiness and safety that they were willing to fight and die for it. And of course, as James Hammond explained, obviously if you were a Southern person, you didn't resist such things. You were a traitor to yourself, you were a traitor to your fathers, and just think of the children as well, of course, right? Because if you didn't uh, kill abolitionists, uh, then you were uh, reneging on your duties and responsibilities to children. What about the children? So the universal health care, gun restrictions, forced vaccinations, and mass all fit that exact same mold, the sensationalist, uh, really kind of fatalistic uh, interpretation of everything. Uh, transgendering kids is another point of contention, super, super white hot right now. So if you refuse drugs or surgeries to a confused adolescent, uh, often children who are in stages of their life, they're not really expected to have a sexual identity. Uh, well, then you're an abuser of children. You want to deny them uh, some weird conception of rights. Uh, and you want to uh, take, or you want to... Uh, prevent life-saving medical treatment, they call it now. So, once again, the same framework. If you have an opposing viewpoint, you want children to die. You're a murderer of children. And this violent, this type of violent rhetoric uh, in the antebellum period helped instigate the Civil War. And, and really, 0.1% of the Southern population stood to benefit from the maintenance of slavery. But that elite Democrat master class controlled the information into the South, uh, starting with its first president, Andrew Jackson, who destroyed and burned uh, and encouraged his, or put into place, I should say, different uh, postmasters to the same. Uh, just so the only information the Southern people were given was anti-abolitionist, pro-slavery radicalism. Uh, the likes of which we've we've read a little bit of today with James Hammond, Calhoun, and others. So we have historical context to apply to the uh, to much the same patterns uh, evidence today. Uh, a lot of the language being used is has a very real potential to cause harm and to potentially cause a large scale civil uh, conflict, which we've already seen really in many respects with. Uh, so many riots and burnings and destructions. And of course, we saw that as well uh, all throughout the 20th century. 
So millions of people right now are being conditioned to believe that Republicans want to kill babies, restrict health care, let old people die, poison the entire world, and so on and so forth. So leading politicians even claim that Republicans are destroying the planet ad nauseum. Just look at uh, AOC's Twitter feed. Or, or really don't. It, it hurts. So they often conflate uh, notions of climate change as planet killing. So if you oppose, say, uh, t- the tyrannical and despotic Green New Deal, it's because you want the entire planet to be destroyed and all the babies to die. And you're a racist, usually, as well. So just as in the uh, southern states, ignorance and poverty were essential, the same policies are being pursued today to create a dependent political base uh, that can be uh, properly uh, conditioned and propagandized. And that's why you see uh, these concentrations of Democrats just in certain small areas. That's why the push... Also, to condense uh, people into smaller and smaller, uh, tighter population centers, uh, it's easier to maintain control of populations that way. And we don't have to really uh, infer or extrapolate historical data to the present time. We have many salient uh, examinations already made for us. 59%. Uh, Poll Democrats felt that unvaccinated people should be forced to remain isolated in their homes. Now, an important detail here in these other variables is to use the you, to say that force should be used means that people who resist can be murdered or in jailed or imprisoned rather. So this is an extreme thing to say that someone should be forced to do something. So 59% of Democrats felt that unvaccinated people should be forced to remain in their homes, so seemingly at gunpoint. Another 48% felt that anyone who dissented from the COVID narrative should be imprisoned. And 44% of Democrat men under the age of 50 uh, feel that political assassination uh, is a just practice. So who knows how many John Wilkes Booths are running around out there. And, of course, here recently we there was a would-be assassin who uh, wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice uh, because of upcoming decisions on abortion and guns. So the downfall or the byproduct fallout of this propaganda is very, very clear. Another interesting uh, kind, of, kind of poll out there right now shows that Republicans and Democrats both believe that there is moral decay in the country, and they both blame the policies of each other for that decay. So a very clear division, a very clear change in national identity. And even as recently as 2021, a poll showed that that 41% of Biden voters and 52% of Trump voters, they favored dividing the country in two. And the point of that division was political. Republicans on one, Democrats on the other. So this, there are very real consequences to these things. So if, if people are already so divided in this instance, and that division is not allowed to occur, uh, then, I mean, theoretically, you might have 41% of Biden voters uh, or 52% of Trump voters take up arms and try to enact that kind of division uh, in the proud history of the Democratic Party. So 
Although these polls illustrate important details, we want to observe the cautionary warnings given by Edward Bernays. Uh, he, he warned that uh, public opinion polls can be used to shape public opinion. Of course, we know that to be true. Nonetheless, they do provide some insight here uh, because we're not just examining the polls in a vacuum, but looking at it through the larger context of American history. And we can see these same patterns emerging again. History shows us that the results of this kind of rhetoric, and it also shows those most responsible as the Democratic Party and leftists more generally. And they weaponize propaganda and social conditioning to compensate for a gaping lack of intellectual, reasonable argumentation. The argument is very seldom, what can we do for you? It's generally what the other guys want to do to you, to harm you in some way. However, this pursuit of political power in the present day, through the stoking up of racial hatred and political hatred, which was identical to the methods used in the uh, glorified slavery days of the Democratic Party, it has very, very real consequences, and we must reestablish a sense of reasoned debate in order to not repeat history and to perhaps bring our country back together under a shared national identity where we can all be Americans who can reasonably work through our issues. And of course, it uh, may come as no surprise that uh, my primary argumentation is that a restoration of these values requires uh, a refocusing on natural rights theory and away from positive freedoms. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. The Shane Caraway Show is available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, visit 1787project.com to learn more.